My name is John Reuser. I'm the Deputy Director of the UCL Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience and I am one of the leaders of the Neuroscience and Mental Health Group here and, and my work mainly focuses on understanding the cognitive and brain mechanisms uh, underlying uh, symptoms of depression uh, and their treatment. My name is Ron Kessler. I'm a professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School. I'm a psychiatric epidemiologist. Uh, for many years, I've been involved in doing large-scale community epidemiological needs assessment surveys for governments, uh, essentially uh, studying the prevalence and the cost to society of mental disorders, trying to make the case that mental disorders are real disorders and we need to invest in them and that treatments work and that it's a smart thing for society. And um, in recent years, I've been getting more involved in clinical epidemiological research, which is what we're going to talk about today, which is an underdeveloped area of uh, research in psychiatry. Um, and uh, as part of that, I've, uh, I lead a, a big precision medicine initiative here in Boston. Hi, welcome to the Mental Health Podcast. I'm Carlos and I'm with Carol today. We're both PhD students from the UCL World Mental Health Science Program at the UCL Institute of Mental Health. The Institute is organizing an annual international conference on mental health, uh, which will take place on the 15th of September. Uh, today, we are joined by two of the speakers, Ron Kessler from Harvard University and John Reuser from UCL, who will give talks on precision psychiatry. We'll start off with maybe um, a general, but maybe controversial question. So we often hear that we need to rethink psychiatry. Why do you think that is the case? Has psychiatry maybe in some ways under-delivered? The way that I'm interpreting your question is um, really around thinking about what we mean when we talk about disorders. And that's something that I've been thinking about uh, for some time. So from a neuroscientific perspective, I've long been convinced that our categorically defined disorders uh, that exist in the mental health sphere, uh, which have you know, basically been largely set in stone for uh, decades, many decades, probably don't represent natural kinds uh, in nature. So that when we talk about something like depression, we're not talking about a homogenous entity. And because we define the disorders, so they're entailed in terms of their symptoms, not in terms of their underlying uh, mechanisms, um, inevitably, we end up grouping people uh, together who've got different underlying mechanisms uh, driving their symptoms. And that could even potentially be the same symptom. And an analogy that I uh, have uh, thought about in the past here is the historical diagnosis of dropsy. So dropsy was a swelling or what we'd call edema nowadays. And uh, it, historically, it was treated using bloodletting. And nowadays, we don't think of dropsy or edema as a, you know, a single uh, diagnosis. We wouldn't try to, to treat it as a, as, a, as a disorder. We recognize that it's a, a symptom which could be driven by lots of different underlying mechanisms, each of which you know, would require a separate sort of treatment. And that's the that's a process that I think we could uh, go through um, to, to change our thinking about mental health away from just a purely symptomatic uh, definition towards a, um, a, a more mechanistic framework, which wouldn't necessarily replace 
symptoms, of course. It's very important to be able to diagnose according to symptoms, but to maybe replace how we think about uh, the divisions um, between disorders and also the commonalities um, across disorders. And the reason I think this might help um, improve uh, the state of play in treatment is because of this, this idea of precision uh, treatment, because if really these uh, disorders defined by symptoms are more like umbrella terms, um, then we might be able to identify um, subtypes, we might be able to identify groups of patients that are a bit closer to uh, natural kinds, um, and we might be able to figure out whether we should start with one type of treatment or another, which could help us move away from the sort of trial and error uh, process, which is you know, pretty standard clinical practice uh, today, because at the moment, if a patient turns up to a, a you know, primary care physician or a psychiatrist's um, office and you know, says that I'm suffering from depression, really that there's no strong uh, indication practically for that uh, clinician to decide, well, maybe I'll try this drug or that drug, or maybe I'll try uh, a psychological intervention, maybe I'll try some kind of brain stimulation. You know, at the moment, unfortunately, the patients probably suffer uh, longer than uh, longer than they should do. So that's why I think going through this process of uh, a rethink uh, might be beneficial for patients. Um, but we're in early days yet, so the clinical utility is you know yet to be um, established. But that's the basic idea from from where I'm coming from. Ron, do you do you agree? Do you think this is the way uh, forward for psychiatry, or um, do you understand? by precision psychiatry, something, something different. Yeah. Well, um, the, uh, yeah, this idea that there's heterogeneity in mental disorders is clearly the case. And, uh, when we find that, uh, that, uh, we have so many treatments that 30% of patients respond or something like that. The question is, is there's something wrong with the treatment or is it really that that's a hundred percent of the people who have, schizophrenia type a are responding but there's and you know it's funny that we we now have uh, like for bipolar disorder there is a thing called lithium responsive bipolar disorder and lithium non-responsive bipolar disorder that's sort of a way of of subtyping the disorder kind of in this backwards way of doing things understanding the uh, the uh uh, the, the pathology in a deeper way, of course, would get us uh, get us a lot closer. And it's a tricky thing because there's a, there's this business of a symptom and a syndrome. So another example is fever. Um, fever. There's all kinds of things that cause fever, but we have something that can help fever. We have aspirins, right? But sometimes it's actually a bad thing to get somebody's fever to go down because the way the fever plays out in the illness is it's actually a protective thing. So it's very tricky to figure out what is it that you're treating and is it a smart thing to treat things? And in a deep way, uh, depends on what your view of the of the world is, but the long, long ago, uh, R.D. Lang's kind of things or the whole tradition of people who are psychiatrists who become essentially politicians say it is our job to make uh, crazy people sane in a crazy world uh, when we realize we just can't change the world, there are some conditions that are anybody in their right mind would be anxious or depressed or hostile or things, or should we stop doing that and go out and try to change the world? So it's this really interesting thing about figure and ground, and it, uh, it comes up in a, 
in a deeper, more fundamental way than psychiatry than a lot of other things. If somebody has a broken bone, you know what you do. You go to the emergency department, you get the bone set. But when they feel existential kind of, you know, what what is that, the meaning of life? It's hard, you know, so there's that other piece too, that psychiatry has sort of blends off into things that I think at some point, John, you might say, you know, it turns out that's not an illness at all. That's just sort of a way of being in the world. And where we carve the edges there is unclear. We're not going to be able to get to there till we get to the more fundamental illness pieces and sort of see what's left. I, I totally agree with that, uh, Ron, actually. I think we have to recognize the context in, in which symptoms are, are being expressed. I don't think there's, it's no surprise that if you look cross-culturally, you know, the expression of depression in uh, some cultures uh, looks very different to the expression of depression in, in, in other ones. I, I suppose another analogy could be something like, um, you know, let's say you've got a, a kids who are living near a busy road, they may be you know, more likely to suffer from some respiratory illness. And uh, yeah, it would be great if we if we could get rid of the road. But on the other hand, millions of people are using it every day. So maybe that's not very practical. So in the meantime, we do actually need to you know, give them uh, an inhaler or, or something similar. So that and, and I definitely agree with you that we may not come down to natural kinds at the end of the day. Maybe it's going to come down to a, a sort of more dimensional uh, explanation. And then what if we think about what we have as the diagnoses right now, maybe they're just these combinations of extremes on, on dimensions that just then happy, happen to end up uh, reaching our criteria um, on, on tick boxes. Um, but of course, these diagnostic uh, frameworks were developed in, in the context of you know, a, a Western uh, culture and uh, a Western way of life. Um, and I think there's there's a huge amount uh, left to understand about the way in which uh, uh, societal pressures and in particular economic disadvantage and 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 inequality and um, and other stresses um, uh, like racism and, and misogyny you know play out. And I think that those are inevitably going to um, be an important part of how we think about mental illness in the future as well. But that doesn't doesn't preclude the idea that we we could do better in terms of the people who need help um, if we think about where the symptoms are coming from uh, at the mechanistic level. That's very interesting and I think we we're talking about very deep things now but going back a bit uh, maybe to something more basic for our listeners. So the title of your talk in the conference will be Precision Psychiatry. That will be the, the common between both of your talks. So maybe you have different approaches to it. How do you see patient psychiatry? How would you define it for someone that has never heard the term before? Well, to a certain extent, I think uh, at the moment, precision psychiatry may not, it may, it may not be the most intuitive term because at the moment it's not very precise. Um, we hope that one day it will be precise. But the basic idea behind precision psychiatry is saying that we can characterize at an individual level people who are suffering from symptoms of mental health problems in a way that is going to allow us to decide which, which is the best intervention for them and then the hope is that we can do better than 50 50. and at the, for, for me at the moment anything better than 50 50 will do 
Um, so there's a nice study from um, the STARDI, which was a big um, analysis of, uh, of depression and response to treatment. And it used, say, a machine learning approach um, to look at which combinations of symptoms and which combinations of uh, demographic uh, factors were associated with a positive treatment outcome to a particular medication. And it got about, it, it could do about 60%. And, and the clinician, uh, clinician's prediction, which were also measured in the same study, was about actually about 50-50. So 60-40 is better than 50-50, but it's still not very precise. And from my perspective, I think that if we start to incorporate some of these more mechanistic measurements, so uh, co cognitive processes, things that we can measure in the brain, be it the uh, anatomy, uh, be it the uh, function, be it the connectivity, um, then hopefully we will start to be able to do a little bit better than uh, that. But then there are, of course, other factors that one could uh, incorporate. Um, and uh, that's really uh, that's really Ron's uh, specialty. So I'll let him comment on that in a minute. But really, it, it's about saying for a particular individual, as opposed to an entire group of individuals, uh, which is the which is the right treatment for you. And I think it's important to make a distinction between two two broad ways of uh, of working in precision psychiatry. One is, and this is the one I'm I'm involved in, is uh, starting with the treatments that exist right now, and say we have a particular patient and there are four things we can do. Which of the four things is the best one for that person? Not what's the best thing to do in the hypothetical world, but in the world we live in. Here are these four. And given that you tr pick a particular one and it doesn't work, what's the best next step? And what's the best next step and so forth? That's one kind of precision psychiatry. Another version is more the kind of stuff that John's doing, which is sort of trying to figure out, are there better treatments we could develop by understanding something deeper about the, the illness? And in the extreme, you know, there are people now doing genomic kind of studies trying to say, can I take a person's own blood and develop a particular medicine just for that human being? You know, are, are there ways that we could do, you know, CRISPR kind of thing? And so, um, uh, so there's these, it's uh, the term precision psychiatry, as John says, quite imprecise, but it covers both of those things. People who are trying to do very practical things about what's the decision I make for this person right now with these responses and thinking toward the future. Could you maybe for our listeners give us some um, concrete example of something that of a method that you think is particularly useful or particularly promising and maybe in the next couple, couple of years? Maybe I'll give an example from the, which I think has been a sort of stunning example from the psychosis field. So uh, there is, uh, over the past decade or so, there is a very small subgroup of patients who are otherwise pretty much indistinguishable from other patients who suffer from psychosis, who turn out to have a, a kind of autoimmune characteristic where they basically develop um, antibodies against their own NMDA receptors. So this is uh, kind of anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. And it's fascinating to see culturally how this has uh, uh, developed, because uh, when you, you know, when, when you treat people with the appropriate uh, immunological uh, therapy, then then this, um, this goes away. So the first thing that happened is um, 
this all of a sudden stopped being a psychiatric disorder and, and starts becoming an autoimmune disorder. So it's almost like anything that we can explain using kind of standard, uh, you know, a, a biological framework almost uh, becomes exempted uh, from, from the field of, of, of psychiatry. But this is an area in which, you know, there, there is there's a clear understanding of, of what's actually uh, uh, driving the symptoms, not, not a kind of in terms of the brain networks, but certainly in terms of this one uh, receptor, which we suspect is very important in, in, in other uh, psychoses as well. And then it has this specific treatment. And that's all that's all evolved because we understand this, you know, this very specific thing. And I, I hasten to add it is only a very small subset of patients. But once upon a time, people would, you know, these these patients would have been given the same antipsychotic drugs, the D2 uh, blockers like everyone else. And frankly, they probably would have not responded to them. And probably they would have gone on to become, you know, chronic patients, you know, maybe institutionalized, um, etc. Um, and so this is this is really game changing for these very small uh, for this very small number of people, um, and I think you know that that that's just uh, as an extreme example, uh, but it gives a flavour of the kinds of um, the kinds of things that can happen once you start to have a little bit more of the neuroscientific uh, understanding. And, and this is not actually just a thing of the past. You know, there's some thinking that there might be. 10% as, as much of people who are chronic schizophrenics in institutions today who still suffer from these things. But let me give you another one that's from that other extreme that I talked about, just knowing that the, the, the big breakthrough in recent years in schizophrenia treatment has been long-acting long injectables. We found one really striking thing about people where uh, antipsychotic medications don't work. We found that a lot of schizophrenics don't take their medications because they're too disorganized to do it. And so, uh, so having these things where they have to come in and once a month they get a shot rather than once a day they take a pill makes an unbelievable difference to their life. Now, of course, it's a lot more expensive to do that because those medications cost more and you have to get them in and stuff like that. But there's been some research done uh, a, a precision, if you will, studies that are essentially saying we can't predict very well a lot of the biological things about schizophrenia, but we can predict pretty well who's not going to take their medication. And they're the people who really need the extra effort. And uh, targeting those people for the long-term injectables has turned out to have a big impact from the population perspective in managing the burden of uh, psychosis. This is part of a more general thing about that same topic in, me in medicine where we find that an enormous burden to the healthcare system is people not showing up for appointments. And um, there are a lot of places now that because of this, the day before you have an appointment on your cell phone, you get a little text message saying, don't forget you have an appointment with Dr. Jones at two o'clock. And click this button if you're not able to come and stuff like that. But still, there's the problem. So models have been developed in the U.S. Uh, Veterans Administration. A, a friend of mine did this to take information about where it is that the person lives, characteristics of the individual and their past experience to say, who are the people who have the highest probability of being a no-show? So in addition to getting a message, 5% of patients get a phone call the night before. Uh, it's extra work uh, in a system like the Veterans Administration, where they have 12 billion people a year, 
um, and you know, eight hundred thousand visits a day kind of thing. You think it's it's an enormous amount, of, but it turns out that by having five people whose full time job it is to make uh, those phone calls, you can save three FTEs of an MD. You've just it's just had an enormous positive impact on the system. So they're little things like this. They're sort of they're not really medical. They're operations research. They're engineering kind of things that just make the system run more smoothly by targeting little decisions you can tweak that have a good impact. And I think actually IAPS, um, as Ron alluded to, this increasing access to psychological therapies program, which was rolled out in the UK over a decade ago now, is another is really another example of uh, precision psychiatry in a way because what what it said was most people that their therapist doesn't need to know all, all of the different types of therapy you know they, they need to probably need to know cognitive behavioral therapy maybe they need to know interpersonal therapy behavioral activation psychodynamic therapy all the kind of things that you learn in clinical psychology training most of those are not relevant for, for, for people with the most common uh, depression anxiety disorders. So let's just take what we think is the kind of core thing that most people need and let's just train therapists instead of just taking three years to train them, we just take one year to train them. They just do a, not even a master's, it's, it's, uh, it's actually a diploma degree. And then after one year or actually only really nine months based on the UK educational system, they are ready to go out and, uh, and treat people uh, in the community um, and yeah, we still need to have these people who are very highly qualified and, and know all of the different um, uh, therapies. But uh, for many people, they they're going to get better. They're going to get to that step level, you know, step two or step three, and they're going to get better before they ever really need to see the uh, psychologist, the clinical psychologist, who's going to work with the sort of more complex uh, cases and, and maybe the, the people who have more chronic problems. You know, and that's a lovely example of the kind of operations. Um, uh, research making a big difference that uh, Ron was talking about because now it is much much easier to go and get a course of psychological therapy and actually the original paper that um, made this argument and, and really it was a book made they made the economic argument that because it doesn't actually cost that much to, to train people over nine months to administer cognitive behavioral therapy and because we lose so much money to in the economy because depressed people can't go to work and they need to receive incapacity benefit etc actually in the end is is economically uh, viable to have this enormous training program tens of thousands of new therapists in the uk were trained over a relatively short period of time and it's a really nice example of how an enormous number of people millions of people have now benefited from the fact that this iapt a system exists um, and, and it was really only because of those arguments that were, were made at a policy level and, and at a psychological level uh, that it ever happened. That's very interesting what you or you're talking about. I was thinking what can funding bodies or policymakers do to help these to, to help speed up this process of finding these more precise treatments? Well um, there are an enormous number of clinical decision tools that are being developed in medicine based on the fact that we now have these electronic medical records that are increasingly available and uh, standardized. But uh, interestingly, just last week, a um, kind of a scandal controversy arose about one of those, which is that Epic, this very large company in the US, one of its many models is a SEPTIS model. 
it says who are the people who are hospitalized who are, have the increased risk of septus and there's sort of who should be getting antibiotic prophylactically and so forth. And they develop these co complicated artificial intelligence models based on a great deal of data, give this to clinicians and then the clinicians act on it. But this study that was just reported showed that the EPIC septus test, which is now used in hundreds of thousands of people a year, completely doesn't work because once you've done it, you can't really see whether you know you you give the give the, the the antibiotic to people, they don't get an infection. Would they have gotten it in the absence of the? And you don't know because you gave it to all of them. So they they did some fancy before after rolling in thing and estimated that it probably doesn't do much better than chance. So a, a big thing is I don't think it's going to be a problem to say have the healthcare system get a lot of these things. They're just coming. The question is, how do we do quality control to make sure that they're any good? Because um, it's so easy. These, these things are so easy to do. There's going to be hundreds of these soon in the next few years. And is there some independent body that's going to be able to tell us uh, which ones are worthwhile, which ones are not? But how do we create a system that's uh, a continuously quality improving and uh, monitoring success and failure and it's a tricky thing yeah and and from my perspective i guess at the, kind of the other end um of the uh, of the scale more towards the mechanistic side i think that there's a there's a big difficulty in getting um trials funded which use randomization which can then allow you to kind of address the, the question of causality that allow us to draw a robust conclusions around prediction my favorite example of this is in the sort of psychological therapy field. So there have been probably about a dozen, maybe two dozen studies that have attempted to predict response to psychological intervention based on some pre-treatment brain scan. In principle, it's a neat idea, right? The real issue is, as, as Ron is alluding to, if you don't have a control group there, if you don't have a randomized uh, design, you don't know whether that brain marker, whatever it is, is just predicting people who are just going to get better anyway. And so if you really want to make a strong claim about this, you need to have the, the, the predictors measured uh, before the randomization happens. Um, and ideally, you know, the predictive variable is also balanced between the groups. Um, and you need to have the randomization and, and it all needs to be you know, done as much as possible in a controlled and, you know, double blind maybe a bit too much to hope for, but at least with some some effort at, at maintaining uh, some kind of masking. And then, if you run those kinds of studies, you can actually draw quite robust conclusions. You can you can ask whether the the treatment works. You can ask whether the treatment changes the um, you know the neuros, neurobiological measure that you're interested in. You can ask whether the neurobiological measure predicts specifically for the intervention, but not for the control. Who's going to get better? That would be nice to know. Uh, if you do some really fancy statistics. Uh, and you measure the neurobiological marker again at the end, you can start asking questions about mediation. Is it the people in which the marker got uh, changed who, who are really showing the greatest uh, evidence of improvement? All of these are things that we would like to be able to uh, provide evidence for if we're going to say that this is really how this uh, particular treatment is working. The, the difficulty from the funding perspective is um, that these kinds of studies cannot be conducted by a single uh, research group with a particular set of expertise. It basically, it has to be an interdisciplinary um, uh, collaboration. 
because you're going to have one group of people, you know, like my kind of group who are experts in the cognitive neuroscience and, and they've thought about which brain or cognitive markers you might want to use. There's a whole other group of people with totally different expertise, but incredibly important in actually how you run the trial, uh, how you design the trial. And then there's a kind of separate operations uh, side of things. And then some of these statistical analyses, you know, really complicated. You start having to, to, especially if you're taking measurements all the way through the trial, you have to start running these statistical models which have time lags in them. Uh, and then if you really want to assess the mediation, you need to be confident that the, the thing that you're really interested in uh, as the mediator is actually changing uh, before the uh, the symptoms as well. Like it's really it's really tough to do, and and no one group can really do it. But the opportunities for applying for those kinds of interdisciplinary funding schemes, that certainly in the UK, are unfortunately relatively limited. And and if you're going to run it in a randomised controlled trial uh, context with with really uh, decent numbers of participants in the hundreds, in order to get the statistical power that you need, then it's going to be very expensive as well. So so you, whenever you apply for this kind of money, you, there's always the uh, likelihood that you're, you're going to get criticized from one angle or, or another. And there's, uh, if, if you've got many, many disciplines, then it only needs one criticism from one of the disciplines uh, for the other people uh, who, are, who are considering the grant application at the, the committee. Say, oh, OK, well, well, you know, that, that's a valid criticism and we need to rely on this person's expertise and it's not going to get funded. And so inevitably, actually, very few of these studies end up getting funded. And I think that is a sort of structural uh, problem in the research funding landscape, certainly in, uh, in the UK and, and probably uh, in Europe as well. And we have this other funding problem, which is that understanding individual differences in the patient perspective and how those things work requires very large samples because we're inherently looking at very complicated interactions and to do to study interactions powerfully you need sample sizes even for a simple interaction four times as big as a, as a sample to study a main effect so you need massive samples we have lots of those things in psychiatry as well but they're tiny tiny studies uh, who are the people who respond to uh, CBT there are 50 different studies that have, you know, 75 patients each. And uh, they all have developed little models that predict pretty well in that sample. None of them use the same measures, so we can't combine them. Uh, if you try to do meta-analyses, which is sort of our, our kind of version, of sort of after the fact, putting together the studies, Pim Cuppers, and there's some people in the UK who do these kind of stuff. And after putting together, I think, 18 trials and building up a big enough sample, and you look at all the predictor variables that were measured in those studies, but you can only look at the ones that everybody measured. And what you end up with is age, sex, and shoe size. I mean, it's, you know, it's totally idiotic models because you don't, there's no coordination. So, so one way of trying to do this is to get better coordination across studies to get people to agree on consistent measures. But that's a, um, that's a very uh, backward way of doing things. That's the way we do things in these long-term uh, 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 womb to tomb studies. You know, the, the British household surveys that I mentioned, you look at what are the things about childhood that are important for midlife development? Well, the things that we study are things that 20 years ago, somebody had an idea that that's important. But uh, if, you wanna, if you have a new idea today, you've got to wait for another 20 years to get your, uh, your measure on a 
you know, it's just not an efficient thing to do. So we need a new paradigm for doing these kind of studies. And one that I want to talk about in this presentation is using non-experimental trial emulation kind of approaches uh, as, the, as the, the core first step in developing precision psychiatry models and thinking of trials as the second step rather than the, the first step. Um, and um, there's a lot that can be done uh, because we have these massive electronic databases now with treatments that already exist, um, trying to emulate a trial by saying, what if I were uh, to randomize people across these three widely used treatments? And it's actually not difficult to do. And the reason is nobody knows what they're doing. So they essentially do what they like, uh, you know, what they think is right. And the, the patient might as well be randomized. It's by the luck of the draw, they go to a particular physician who's experienced with a certain medication and they're going to get that medication, you know, if they go to another one. So it's, it's almost as if they were experimentally assigned. So going in and trying to discover the random components of people's experience and use that as what's technically called instrumental variables, trying to find the experiment in nature uh, to try to approximate what we think would have happened uh, if we had, we had randomized in a systematic way can give us good initial insights into comparative effectiveness in the aggregate. And then overlaying on that, the information we can, we can gather about individual differences that might help us understand why it is that one treatment works better for a particular person than another. And it could be a, a, exactly the opposite for a different person. And if we could develop sort of signatures of that sort that look like they're, they, they have some, uh, some traction, we could relatively inexpensively try to do pragmatic trials instead of doing things that are these enormous, enormous amounts of money. Uh, I'm right now involved in several pragmatic trials in the U.S. where we go in and we're essentially randomizing to clinicians feedback about our predictions to try to push the treatment in a certain direction. And so that at a very low cost, we're, we're doing a simulation of, a, of an intervention that would have cost tens of millions of dollars to do otherwise, but we could do for, for very, very little money because we're not paying for all the all the technology would exist. The, the, the difficulty in doing this in psychiatry, like so many other things, the reason we're behind compared to many other places is we don't have good outcomes that are there automatically. So in heart disease, we know when a person has a heart attack. We know when they're dead. As a matter of fact, every time we come in, we know what their, their blood pressure is because it's automatically taken. And so we have, these, we have these measures that we can monitor on an ongoing basis. We don't have that in psychiatry. Uh, this movement toward measurement-based care, where everybody would, every time the patient comes in, assess them in exactly the same way so that we have some tracking stuff is starting to begin. And once we have that, we'll be able to do this much, much better than we are right now. But so far, it's, it's just very, very difficult. We have a much more complicated phenotype than other people. We don't have good measures of what the outcome is. Uh, we have kind of semi-chaos in what kind of treatment people get. But I think we're slowly getting there. And I would add, add, add to that that in, in principle, um, 
with these now very large studies which, which have been established, um, and, and there's examples in the UK and in the US, in the UK it's the UK Biobank, there's no reason one couldn't incorporate more mechanistically inspired measurements into these kinds of quasi-experimental analyses which Ron is referring to. So for example, in the UK Biobank, um, by the time they finish this arm of the study, 100,000 of those people will have received a brain scan, right? They'll have an anatomical scan, they'll have a, a scan where they measure the functional activation um, during emotion processing. There's a resting state scan where people are just lying in the scanner and you basically uh, try to assess the degree of connection between the different areas. And all of, all of those uh, people have got uh, their medical records as well, as some of those people will almost certainly go through IAPT, uh, the Psychological Treatment Service, where these kinds of routinely collected um, symptom outcomes from a psychological intervention will actually be uh, collected. And uh, at a certain stage, it's going to be a, a kind of organisational question about how to link all of those things up. Um, and I think there is a kind of similar um, initiative to uh, Biobank that's uh, being uh, developed in, in the US as well. So it, it won't be an enormous amount of time before actually we could do these kinds of studies with more mechanistic measures. And, and in the larger Biobank software, which is half a million people, everybody's had an assessment of, uh, of neuropsychological function, uh, for example. So I think there is uh, some interesting potential there. But in part, there's, there's an issue in mental health, which is that we're used to being a low cost discipline, that we think we, think we have to be uh, inexpensive. And that this is really reflected, and this comes back to your original question, Carlos, in actually the levels of funding that, that are available, uh, not just for treatment, but for also for research. So um, Ron, I'm not sure if you'll be aware of this, this is a charity in the UK, the first ever mental health research charity called MQ. And a couple of years ago, they did a survey of the funding landscape in, uh, in mental health. And they found some really startling statistics. So their headline statistic was every year across all types of funding, but government, uh, charity, whatever, uh, per person, we spend nine pounds on research in, in mental health. And, and actually the majority of that, or a large chunk of that, I should say, uh, is not relating to patients at all. It's just around sort of basic, you know, cognitive, psychological, um, uh, neuroscientific research. Nine pounds per person. And if you look in cancer, uh, the figure is 228 pounds per person per year. Right? That's a big discrepancy. We spend about five times as much money as we do on, uh, on cancer research than we do on mental health research in the UK uh, per year even though there's probably about five times as many people who suffer from mental health problems than do cancer. So I, I do think there is a sort of cultural thing around thinking that mental health is sort of the Cinderella discipline and, and it's not, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it's just not going to get the funding. And it may be that, you know, if, even if we get modestly uh, predictive um, markers, uh, I, I personally dislike the word biomarker, but let's use it anyway, even if we get modestly predictive biomarkers, one could make the argument as the IAPT um, uh, originators made the eye out that it is worth spending this money because overall, because mental health has such a profound impact on, on society and, and the economy, you're going to save money at the end of the day. And, and that's the kind of hardline economic rationale that you actually end up having to give to policymakers. So I personally don't think it's impossible if, if the healthcare economics uh, analysis is done and it looks like 
you know, giving at least a subpopulation of people who suffer from depression uh, a brain scan to, to figure out whether they should go on one type of medication or another, or whether they need some kind of, you know, uh, brain stimulation or, or psychological intervention. I can imagine, uh, I can imagine a scenario in which that could become uh, cost effective, and I wouldn't want to rule it out um, for now. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ron and John. It's been a very insightful and wonderful conversation. And we're looking forward to see your talk on, on September 15th. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Nice, really nice to meet you, Ron, and, and see you in September. Have a good day. Thank you very much, gentlemen. John, good talking to you. Nice meeting you. Mm -hmm.